This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk from Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Mahatma Gandhi once said, quote, The true measure of any society can be found on how it treats its most vulnerable members, unquote. The children who experience the foster care system due to abuse or neglect are certainly some of our most vulnerable members. On any given day, nearly 428,000 U.S. children are in foster care, of which roughly 9,000 are here in Massachusetts. These children depend on the state's foster care agency to effectively determine their needs and to find a safe and appropriate placement for temporary care. How does this process work? And who advocates for improvements to a system whose members are too young to advocate for themselves? My guest today is Josh Archambault, Senior Healthcare Fellow at Pioneer Institute. As frequent listeners of Hubwonk will know, Josh has been a co-host for many earlier shows. Today, Josh will wear two hats. As a scholar, Josh recently published an op-ed in USA Today that showcased his research on policy changes needed to improve the foster care system in the U.S. As a foster parent himself, Josh is here to share his firsthand experience and offer our listeners insight into the highly rewarding but often misunderstood foster care system. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much for having me again, Joe. All right. So before we uh, talk about your story and the important research you're doing into the foster care system, uh, set the table for us. How long or how far back has it been where uh, the state assumes the role of caring for children for who, for whatever reason, don't have parents to care for them? When, when did this all start? Yeah, so the history in America is an interesting one, and it actually comes from England. So there was an English poor law that was imported into America, into the colonies, and under that, largely children who needed a place to go were put into indentured service, Um, not uh, ideal for them in any way. And it wasn't until about 1850 uh, in New York City when there was a, a Reverend Charles Loring Brace who actually started something called the New York Children's Aid Society. Why this matters is he was he came to New York and was very concerned about the children who were living on the street. They were homeless. And so he started this aid society in which they ended up relocating about 150,000 kids, uh, largely to farms in the Midwest and in the South uh, as a way to put kids into families. It was then in which states stepped forward after seeing what the aid society was doing. And so Massachusetts was actually the first state in the country uh, to start to pay families to board children. And there were a number of other states, Pennsylvania and others, around that time that started to pass some laws related to foster care. So there's quite, quite a history in America here in trying to set up um, and evolving into what is the modern day foster care system. That we have. Josh, before we get into how the modern foster care system works, explain to our listeners what's at stake. Why is it so important that we get foster care right? Uh, what is the benefit to everyone for effective foster care parenting? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, most people would agree that vulnerable population and we want to be able to take care of uh, kids. In particular, we can think of nieces, nephews, think of ourselves as a kid. And if they were in that sort of situation, we would want a safe environment for them. So that's first and foremost. But really longer term, unfortunately, the research is very, very clear that uh, children who experience foster care, their long-term 
outcomes if they are not able to be able to be placed in a safe uh, home or have people investing them is really quite poor when it comes to uh, the likelihood of them ending up in uh, prison, unfortunately, homeless, uh, for young girls to have children very young, um, the readiness for them to enter the workforce. Um, if you don't have good models around you of how to put a resume together, how to find a job, how to open a bank account, uh, there are long-term ramifications of not doing this well. And so uh, whether it's the direct interest of the foster care system and the agency, or whether it's employers or others who care about larger societal uh, concerns going forward, uh, a lot of people should care about the quality of care that's provided for those kids that do end up in the foster care system at some point. I know that foster care is managed by uh, state social agencies. Um, we've got 50 states. How does the care um, compare across states? Is it fairly uniform? Um, and uh, an add-on question I'll offer on these lines is, can, uh, is the system able to um, uh, foster care across state lines, that sort of thing? Well, uh the short answer is it's very different by state. Uh, there, there is some federal standardization that's happened over time and money is tied to uh, certain processes being followed. But just to give you a, a little bit of an example, in Florida, um, their foster care system is almost entirely privatized. It's, it's run by nonprofit entities that contract with the state versus a state like Massachusetts, where that's by and large, not the case. It's, it's a public government entity that is, that is running it. And furthermore, actually, a lot of uh, the processes that are uh, followed are a little bit different by office. Uh, there are different offices in each state uh, that represent the larger state uh, agency. And each of them uh, have a, their own characteristics and personalities. And, you know, the positive of that is it reflects the personnel and the personalities of the workers that work there. The, the downside of that is sometimes there's not standardization with how people experience foster care. So one foster parents or one foster kids uh, experience of foster care may look very, very different even within the same state. Of course. And of course you are, uh, we both are Massachusetts residents. You've, your uh, research is primarily focused here. Uh, how does Massachusetts compare with uh, other states, other neighboring states, or however you want to answer uh, more broadly across the country? Yeah, so the, uh, the Department of Children and Families, which is what we call our foster care uh, agency here in the state, uh, we have a few things for context. So there's uh, roughly about 9,000 children at any given time who are in the custody of the Department of Children and Families. But that's just a slice of what they do. They work with close to 44,000 families on average um, in a given year, helping to support families in which there's a concern about abuse or neglect. Uh, so they're, they're doing lots of different things. Massachusetts also has the distinction, unfortunately, of being, uh, according to federal data, having the highest rate of reported abuse and neglect out of any state. Now, there's two sides to this coin. Um, the positive interpretation of that could be that uh, people are reporting when they see things. Teachers or doctors or nurses, when they are concerned, are actually calling and reporting. The negative side to that, of course, is that we're number one. A lot of people are calling with concerns about uh, potential abuse and neglect. Um, and so the last thing I'd just say for context uh, for listeners is, it's important to remember that 
a lot of the families that are involved with the Department of Children and Families are still together. They're still intact, but the department is trying to come alongside of them to try to prevent having a child to enter the foster care system. So roughly about 80% of the children um, are still with their, their family. And so they're just trying to support them to prevent some, some worse or stressors leading to the point where the child actually has to be removed. And, uh, and yet 20%, of course, those 9,000 you mentioned, or we mentioned in the intro, um, are sent to f- uh, foster families. Um, for our listeners who are not familiar with the process, uh, how and why do children enter and, frankly, leave the foster care system? What, what are the conditions whereby the state does indeed say, we need to take the child? Yeah, so Joe, just I'm going to oversimplify this process a little bit um, for the sake of simplicity. But in essence, you know, like I mentioned, somebody has a concern uh, for a child's safety. So let's just say a teacher or a counselor, um, you know, a child discloses that um, they don't have enough food at home or, or somebody is uh, an adult is not acting in a safe way. And what the department does at that point once they receive is they do something called screening out or screening in. In essence, they investigate. They see, is there a basis to this claim? Do we, are we concerned about the immediate safety of the child? And if they screen it in, as the, the term is, then that child may be removed at that point if they need to be. And then they're placed with um, a foster family. If they cannot find a family member, so an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, that's a suitable place to, to put them. They are looking for family first. And if they are not able to find them, that's when they would turn to uh, a potential foster family. At that point, uh, depending on the case, it can go a million different ways, but in essence, there's three outcomes. Uh, One is that they will be reunified back with their family, and that's the the goal of the department um, in most cases. If that is not a possibility, then adoption could be a possibility uh, for that child going forward, Um, again, simplifying this process, or depending on the age of the child, at some point they may age out of the foster care system and they become you know, a legal adult and they need to make decisions for themselves. So that's the simplistic version of, of kind of how this normally plays itself out. Thank you, Josh. That wasn't simple at all. It's uh, important to understand how children wind up in the system. Uh, let's change our focus a little bit to how parents choose to become foster parents. If you don't mind sharing with our listeners, what motivated you to become a, a foster care parent and what do you suspect uh, motivates others to to join the system? Sure. So uh, for my wife and I, we, before we met, uh, both felt like uh, we wanted adoption to be part of our story. And there's a variety of reasons for that. And my wife's, my mother-in-law was actually involved uh, indirectly in the foster care system uh, when she was working before my wife was born. And so when we got married, had started a family, had a child, uh, we decided to, to, to take that next step down that pathway. And like a good researcher, we looked into all the options around adoption and went to an information session about foster care and both left feeling like, you know what, there's a need here and uh, we would like to bring our family to a child, at least for a temporary period of time. And so we moved forward uh, down the foster care road. For us personally, um, there is a faith element to this, just like many faiths uh, say lots of things about caring for vulnerable uh, children in particular, and so that that is a partial motivation for us. Uh, we've been foster parents for five um, years at this point, and and really we have learned a lot about the system and have have really uh, found it a very rewarding 
experience to be able to invest in this children for the short period of time that they may be in our home, whether it's for a week or a year. Well, there are a lot of fortunate foster kids who have the benefit of families like yours. So thank you, Josh. I want to change our conversation more towards in a policy direction. I know that before COVID-19, the governor and the legislature had foster care among their top two priorities, the other being the MBTA, which we clearly understand why that is a priority. What was it that motivated or is motivating the governor and the legislature to address these foster care issues? And perhaps we can speak to whether they've actually accomplished what they set out to do. Yeah, so what had precipitated, unfortunately, was a series of events, high-profile news stories about unfortunate situations uh, revolving around uh, Department of Children and Families. So there were a couple uh, children that passed away. Um, Sometimes they were in the custody of the state, sometimes they weren't. Um, And often uh, that's the case. And at at those points, people look back and to say, oh, what happened? Uh, Could this have been prevented? And in some situations, there were multiple uh, reports filed with the agency about concerns about the safety of children, and in some cases, they weren't removed. And so as a result, both the governor, now commissioner, and the legislature all were very focused on trying to move towards reform, uh, whatever that looked like. And that's, there's been a lot of reform. Uh, the current commissioner has focused on a few different things uh, as a result of that. She has spend a lot of her time in directing the agency to collecting data so that they can see their own performance and try to make improvements based on that data. Uh, They have hired recruiters to try to get more foster homes and foster families open and available so that when they need to remove a child, they actually have places, um, safe homes to, to place them in. And then they have spent a lot of time revamping kind of the case review process, trying to make sure that they are not missing anything, that when reports come in and when children enter into custody, that they are doing their best to provide uh, what's uh, the best for the the child uh, before they can be reunified or take the next step. So that that really is what it was news stories that brought the spotlight. Well, your recent op-ed in the USA Today uh, spoke to the need to increase the number of foster parents. Um, uh, You mentioned recruiters. Uh, your policy prescriptions were primarily just targeted towards reducing unnecessary barriers to becoming a foster parent. What are some of those barriers and what were the three reforms you explored with your co-author? Yeah, so, you know, COVID-19 has just like many areas put uh, a pause and in the foster care world, there's actually been a significant decrease in the amount of uh, reports of abuse and neglect. And there's a concern that as things start to reopen, some of those stressors of job loss and others will start to become a little bit more apparent and there will be a surge of need for children who need a safe home, at least temporarily. And so my co-author and I were trying to look at this as an opportunity to try to strengthen foster care systems around the country, primarily using technology. And so the three policy prescriptions that we laid out in the op-ed were to say, move some of this foster parent training online, uh, make it much easier for people to be able to go through that process. Uh, The second one was to leverage virtual check-ins for more experienced foster parents. Uh, Foster parents often joke that welcoming a child and um, parenting them is the easy part of foster parenting. It's the 
dozens and dozens of other adults that you have to deal with, court lawyers and social workers and counselors and school folks, teachers, it just adds a lot of complexity. So can you streamline that a little bit more by using virtual means? And then finally, it was looking at leveraging technology that already exists out there to be able to match when a child comes into care with a family so that you prevent children from having to bounce from house to house. It's not uncommon to to hear of children that have been moved a number of times for a variety of reasons, but this is trying to to match them so that that disruption happens a lot less often. All right, if if we can, I'd I'd like to explore a little more about each of the options. Um, I was uh, making a note that um, uh, a familiar theme of our show, we we wanna bring more technology online. Um, The online training, uh, how's it done now, uh, training for uh, being a foster parent? And what are the benefits of moving the current system to more online training? Sure. So again, this is depends on the state. It's done a little bit differently, but by and large, most uh, folks have to go through a training process. It's anywhere from 20 to 40 hours of training. They typically do it with other people who are going through the licensing process. They have to be background checked, fingerprinted. Their home has to be inspected to make sure it's a safe place for children to be. And almost all of the group and training work is done in person, in a group. And as you can imagine, trying to coordinate, especially in a major metropolitan area where people are commuting and uh, trying to deal with job uh, different hours, trying to get everybody, it's a married couple or even a couple doing it together, trying to get everybody in the same room if you're having six or 12 couples or individuals do that, coordinating is very difficult. And so as a result, I've run into a number of people who have said, I'd love to be a foster parent, but I simply can't make the logistics of the training work because they only meet every Tuesday at six o'clock and I just can't get there on time. So the suggestion of moving it online has actually been around for a couple of years in a few states like Illinois and actually Rhode Island and Tennessee have started to move some of their training online. There's been some conversations in Massachusetts. We're not quite there yet in rolling it out from what I understand, but it really changes the whole training process. Not only can you make sure that you have the best training available for the foster parents who are going to step down this path pathway, but you also allow them to do it more on their schedule or a more flexible schedule. And so moving all of it or most of it online would really open up the door. And I think there's been a few states like Arkansas that have moved in this direction during the pandemic and they saw participation double in their training program. So I do think there's something here for states, including Massachusetts, to move aggressively, to move as much of that training online as possible, especially in, in um, the age of COVID. Well, uh, I, this age of COVID has accelerated all of our uh, interactions online, this, this uh, uh, podcast in- included. Um, your, your second, uh, I think it's a piggyback on the, on the first point, which is uh, to um, streamline the interactions between uh, foster parents, the social workers, all the adults you mentioned in the network. Um, uh, say more about that. How, how does uh, the online communication help all the members of the team, if you will, get together? Yeah, so right now scheduling is very difficult when it comes to all of those adults involved in these cases. And uh, when you look at surveys of foster parents nationally, one of the things that they complain about the most or point to as being challenging is 
that scheduling and moving last minute appointments and people needing to, to reschedule. And so I, I want to be clear for listeners, if they read the op-ed, this is clear. This is not to say that all trans interactions should be online. Uh, we want to make sure that social workers do need to see the children, make sure that they're safe at times. But in certain situations, you know, telehealth has changed the face of medicine uh, for us during this pandemic for many people. It should also change the face uh, of this. If you just think about the simple amount of time that is spent for social workers and lawyers to travel to somebody's home or to a meeting place to then see somebody for a half an hour to an hour and then commute back for a more experienced foster parent in which there is no question about the quality of care being provided. You know, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of hours that could be saved for social workers so that they could spend time on the more complex cases or the situations where the children unfortunately have gone through more trauma. So this is really about efficiency, trying to make sure that people have more time, which is their most valuable resource often in the foster care world. They often say they don't have enough time and using technology seems to be just a common sense no-brainer whenever possible. The final step is uh, using technology to also match kids with parents. That seems uh, a pretty obvious thing. It's a, it, forgive me for the uh, comparison, but... Um, sounds almost like a dating site where you say, this is the kind of parent I'd want and this is the kind of child I'd want and you know everybody wins. Is, uh, is that what you're advocating for? Yeah, we, similar. We actually mentioned in the op-ed a, a company called Family Match. It's a nonprofit and one of their senior executives worked for eHarmony, I believe it was at one point. So their, that analogy is not far off. Yeah, I, I think you know, there's a couple pieces here. Um, there's uh, two situations in which you really want to make sure that the fit for the child and for the parents is a good one uh, to prevent any unnecessary trauma that you can avoid. The first is when somebody, a child, enters the system. And if a family member is not available, you do want to make sure that you can streamline that process. What, what typically happens now is it's, it's a manual process. A child comes in and a local agency scrambles, quite frankly, to try to find an open home. Who, who is accepting children? Who in our area could we call to see if they will say yes? It's more about that than it is to say, what is the best placement for this child? Not only is the home open, but do they accept siblings? Do we know of an, uh, an open home in the office next to us, the county over from us? Because they don't know that right now. Do they specialize in medically complex cases? Can they take a sibling set of four? Um, unfortunately, when you can't find it locally, those siblings get split up. And so using technology to, to look at not only is a family home open, but are they a good match within a 50-mile radius, let's say, allows those social workers to work off a much higher quality list of open homes than they currently do now when they look through their current list of whatever homes are in their area. The second uh, time that it really, really matters is if, is if adoption is involved in which you're trying to find a forever home for a child. And that's actually where this technology is used the most now in states like Virginia and Florida who are working with Family Match. And the suggestion is that all states should really be looking at programs like this. You want to look at parental experience, flexibility, all these sorts of character traits that would matter to parenting to make sure that that child is successfully placed in a home and that they're not bouncing around five, 10 times, which is just really dramatic if you think about yourself being a seven-year-old and bouncing around home after home.
lack of stability leads leads to a lot of confusion. I'm glad you brought up uh, adoption. I want to get to that in a moment. Um, before that, I want to set up that uh, idea with uh, another one, which is I have to imagine, again, you're a caring individual. You, you, you care for these children. You, you can't help but care for them. Um, doesn't the terror of essentially the temporary nature of being a foster parent, meaning you're going to love a child, care for a child, um, but you're going to have to have, uh, you're going to have to see them leave. Does that discourage parents? Again, you perhaps can't speak for everyone, but perhaps your research speaks to the idea that uh, foster parents uh, are more interested in adoption because they don't want to ultimately give up a, a child they're caring for. How does that all work? Uh, you know, again, I, I don't know. So um, I'm eager to hear your response. Yeah, I think what is really important and anybody that would be considering to become a foster parent and any training offered by a state should be very apparent about what foster care is and what it is not. And what it is, is in more often cases than not, it's offering temporary care for a child. Uh, the goal is reunification back home. That is the goal. Doesn't mean that it's always accomplished, but that is at least initially the goal. And I think the analogy I think about is um, if you're a teacher, you invest a lot of time and your effort in the children in your classroom, and yet they're going to move on. Um, maybe a, a little bit more crude analogy to return back to the dating uh, analogy. I mean, people enter into dating relationships knowing that there's a likelihood that it might not work out and they might, you know, have the, a loss of a, a breakup. In some ways, it's kind of similar in being a foster parent. You are opening yourself up to the hard of having a child leave the home. So that's why it's important to understand that up front. But that doesn't, shouldn't deter people from looking at the time and effort that they can invest in that child. If, if you're able to model healthy attachment and what healthy relationships are for that child, you could potentially you're helping set the, a firm foundation for them for the rest of their life. If they understand what healthy attachment is. And so I do think that for foster parents to view it more that way, that they're investing in the child. And in some cases you're able to stay in touch after reunification. Sometimes you're not, but I do think that it's important for people to understand what this is and what it isn't from day one. So it isn't, it isn't a, uh, a segue to adoption. Uh, and uh, foster parents should know that going in. Is adoption any part of the story? Is that an endpoint in in, in a substantial number of cases? Yeah, so adoption does happen out of the foster care system. Um, you know, unfortunately, about 50% of the cases where children enter custody, they are not able to reunify. And so one of two outcomes happens. Either they're uh, can become adopted. And, and in Massachusetts, if listeners are interested, there is an organization, the Massachusetts Adoption Resource Exchange, which works with the state, um, in which individuals can go on and see who the children are that are um, available looking for a forever home to be adopted, or they age out. Um, so adoption definitely can be part of the story, but it shouldn't be the primary reason that an individual enters into the foster care system unless they ex explicitly go through that the mayor is what they call it, the Massachusetts Adoption Resource Exchange. That's why that exists. And so that are, there is an opportunity for people to enter into adoption, but they, they should enter in on the right path, uh, depending on what they are actually hoping for. Well, we know a lot of our, uh, our uh, folks on Beacon Hill, the, the legislators, the policymakers listen to this show so you have their ear now. Um, who's doing the good work uh, for uh, foster parenting? 
what you either you can mention legislators or we don't need to give a plug to a particular legislator, but perhaps legislation that is um, as you see is particularly useful for uh, improving the system. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this being a primary focus pre-pandemic, and, and there were a number of legislators who have been and I assume are still active as much as they can be on this. The speaker, in fact, kind of set up a special process to try to get some legislation moving, in particular related to the Department of Children and Families. There are a couple pieces of legislation that were moving. Uh, one was trying to set up a somewhat independent office to review cases in situations where uh, complex issues were coming up or people had concerns about how a case was moving forward. The other one was around and had um, some bipartisan uh, support for this one was around something called an electronic backpack. And this is just dealing with some of the practical things around foster care that we don't tend to think about. But when a child is being removed and placed in another home, they may be switching school districts. Or if they're moved from one foster home to another, they may be switching school districts. And they have, it's very common for situations for children, foster children, to have to get uh, shots and immunizations multiple times because nobody has the record of whether they got those or not at some point. And so this developed something called an electronic backpack. So their files, their school files and other things related to that would follow them so that we don't have to have that situation where whether they have a, you know, a, some sort of additional education plan that's been developed from them at their prior school or even basic health records that would, that would follow them. There's lots of opportunities uh, for additional future reform here. And I do hope that the legislature continues to look at that, um, whether it be foster bill of rights um, or something called prudent parenting, which was a federal law that was passed in 2014, but in which Massachusetts still doesn't have quite a standard in which it determines when foster parents can determine where a child goes for childcare and other issues. There's a lot of opportunities there on top of the technology ideas that we've already discussed, Joe, and I do hope that legislators continue to remain engaged on this. All right, we're getting close to the end of the show. I want to bring back to your story, and um, again, uh, uh, some, are, some of our listeners are listening for policy. Others are perhaps considering uh, becoming foster parents themselves. Um, in your own case, what do you find the most rewarding aspect of foster parenting to be? Um, and what aspects should listeners consider uh, before embarking on, on this, this journey? Yeah, I think I would encourage anyone who's interested in learning more to just uh, reach out and talk to as many people who have involvement in the foster care system as possible. I mean, the, the system exists because of issues and problems and broken relationships. And so there, there is a lot of hard uh, in that space. But I also do think one of the most rewarding pieces for myself is in that hard comes the opportunity for really inspiring stories of uh, redemption, hope, and reconciliation. I mean, if you have a situation, and we've had this in our own lives, in which somebody, a parent, is really struggling with addiction, and the foster care system gets involved, the child is removed, and in that time period, the parent is able to stabilize, work on themselves, and get back on their feet and then are reunified with their children. It really is, and some view it as a blessing in disguise to have their child in foster care, and they're in a much healthier and better place on the back end of that process. That that's, does not always happen, but that's the ideal, and you get to really have a front row seat to that, and that has been the, the most rewarding for me. On top of, uh, you know, the 13 children that have 
come through our home in five years um, have just been, you know, they're fun kids. They're kids. Um, they love to play. They love to be happy. And just to be able to see them kind of relax into a safe home and start to uh, understand what playful engagement and healthy attachment looks like has been ex- exceedingly rewarding for us. Well, I, I'm, I, that's a wonderful answer, a very inspiring answer. Uh, I think we can leave it there. Um, what a wonderful topic. Uh, and I guess we got to see a little bit behind the mask of a, uh, a think tank scholar. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's terrific as well. So I want to thank you for joining me today as, with, I guess, three hats. You are a co-host, you are our scholar, and of course, you're our guest with a, uh, an abundance of experience in, in an important topic. So thank you for joining us today on Hubwalk. Thanks so much, Joe. This has been an episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star rating, you can offer a review, or you can share it with friends. If you'd like to reach me with comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please consider subscribing to Hubwonk so that a new episode can automatically download every Tuesday. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.